Can you hear it with your ears? Can you see it with your eyes? Can you feel it wiggling between your quivering thighs? That thing, that thing, that thing with chains. Once every millennium, something will come along. When you feel it, you will know it, cause it's coming on strong. That thing, that thing. Stress, let me come inside your mind. I promise you it won't take long, the change will happen soon. You will feel something so special growing deep within you. That thing, that thing, that thing with James, that thing, that thing. That's me. Hi. Welcome back to episode 45 of That Thing with James J. Asher II. I'm your host, James J. Asher II. That's me. That's me, baby. So, uh, I didn't have an episode come out last week, and I didn't really tell anyone about it. I just kind of did it because it was Thanksgiving. So, I had a pretty good Thanksgiving. There were no fights, you know, I didn't have to drive super far. And, um, you know, I I think it was a good time for everyone. A good Thanksgiving. And uh, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving, too. I really do. How was it? Did you go home with any leftovers or anything? Cool, cool. Uh, yeah, so this week has been some kind of drama for me, though. Otherwise, some like bureaucratic drama in trying to um, get some health coverage, get some uh, tax assistance credit benefits through the healthcare marketplace. Um, I had a little bit difficult time filling out the application for that, but I got everything straightened out and I get to keep the same um, health and dental plans that I have right now, which, um, you know, the deductible is low enough, especially compared to the other plans available to me. The deductible is low enough and, um, and I get to keep my doctor and my medications, both of which I desperately need. Wink. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can probably tell from the way I look, I definitely uh, need some kind of help. <laughs> but this show gives me help. Uh, for those of you just listening, I, uh, I am wearing a bowler hat, and I am wearing eyeliner. And let me tell you, it looks good. I pulled this look off real fucking good. Um, why am I wearing it? I just felt like it. That's all. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, I reapplied to the healthcare marketplace and I got coverage. Woohoo. Um, I'm grateful to have this coverage. However, I'm totally supportive of Medicare for all. That's all I'm going to say about that right now. And let's see what else. I had some more fucking drama uh, trying to get my license renewed, which has to be done by the end of, well, uh, the 13th, Friday the 13th. I have to get it uh, renewed because the office is closed on Saturday and Sunday. And my 32nd birthday is on Sunday, December the 15th, 2002, 2019. Yeah. I have a birthday coming up and I will be 32 years old. Woohoo. And um, if everything, you know, pans out pretty well, I'm going to do an extra special episode, birthday episode of this show next week. Um, Like I said, if things line up right, I will have a friend come and be a guest on the show and give me a tattoo 
on the show. That's right. You heard it. I, if everything goes according to plan, I am going to get a tattoo on the show and I'm going to record it and I'm going to talk through it for the audio listeners. However, uh, if you're just an audio listener, I strongly recommend at least tuning in next week onto the the YouTube channel uh, to see if the video is up. You can see me actually getting a tattoo. I already have one. Um, I've just kind of wanted a second one and uh, a friend brought something up and this friend happens to be a very talented artist and a talented tattoo artist. And I was like, yeah, sure. Um, Could I like get a tattoo on the show for like a birthday present? And he said he could totally do it. So um, yeah, hopefully schedules schedule things work out and we're able to do that. So either way, Um, Whether my friend is here, whether we're getting a tattoo or not, next week is going to be a special birthday episode for me because I love my birthday and uh, my birthday is all about me and your birthday should be all about you, no matter how old you are. I think everybody um, gets to be reasonably self-centered, within reason, self-centered on their birthday because that's the day you came into existence in this world, you know, outside of a womb. But that's like a whole other fucking debate. Um, I'm also strongly supportive of women's right to choose abortion. And uh, and that's also covered in Medicare for All, by the way. Anyway, uh, let's see. I want to play a bit more music. And then today... I kind of want to get into a topic that has been of good interest of mine for a number of years now, and it will kind of a little bit, a little bit be related to the tattoo I intend on getting in the next episode. Um, but before we get jump into any of that stuff, um, I want to I want to play some music, but. But uh, yeah, yeah, I think I'll just start with some music and then I'm going to play something else, a recording from someone you may or may not have heard of, depending on how old you are and how cool you are. All right, so let's get back. Let's do some uh, fiddling on the git fiddle, huh? Hey, yeah, so I probably just cut out a uh, portion of like a good, I don't know, 10 minutes of me tuning my guitar. Um, I, you know, some days are, are better jam sessions. Some days yield better jam sessions than others. Today was not one of those great jam sessions day, jam session days. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, I've been thinking about some stuff recently and I think it's pretty cool stuff. I've been thinking about uh, chaos magic. Are you familiar with chaos magic? Have you ever heard of it? Well, you're about to. And I want to start this off with a little something from a little happy guy who people knew as Timothy Leary. So let me pull up. uh, Let's see here. Pull up some Tim Leary for you. Let's get through the... uh, Ah! Okay, hold on. The function of 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 a performing philosopher is not to try to sell you on any brand name of philosophy. I have no dogma. I have no um, favorite cause here. I have one cause, and that's the goal of a performing philosopher, is to encourage you and um, inspire you and um, empower you, to the extent I can, to think for yourself and question authority. Now... The way I'm going to try to do that tonight is I'm going to try to, it's all the language. We are, as the French semioticians tell us, we're in shackle by our language. We're imprisoned by our language, by ideas. And so what I'm going to try to do is to, um, with as much 
clarity as I can summon here, uh, and zap on and to laser and to warm up and to buzz and to tickle and to stimulate the shackles of language that are tying you to any particular religion or any particular political party. Now, it is true that if you, you should take on this role of urging people to think for themselves and question authority, y'all can get in trouble that way. <laughs> And that's part of the game, you know. Most people, see, don't want to change. Most people are doing the best they can. They've been entrapped by their parents and their language and by the language of their society. They don't, you know, they, and they're discouraged from thinking for yourself. That's the key. How many of us in our growing years were encouraged to think for ourselves and question authority and come out with new ideas? You know, the aim of the game until Dr. Spock came along in, in 1946, which created the 60s, by the way. Dr. Spock was the first person that told parents, hey, your job is to teach your kids to be individuals and to encourage your kids to be individuals and to treat your kids as individuals. Oh, jeez. When he said that, that's the most subversive statement you can make. Talk about anarchy. Forget it. <laughs> when you teach kids to be individuals, you're undercutting every religion and every uh, organization and every political uh, dogmatic um, system. Because after all history, it matter whether you're left, right, Christian, Jewish, everybody who had an organization agreed you had to take kids and get them to line the kids are little wogs that little animals you got to get them with a, with a carrot and a whip you got to get them to conform and join the, the, the pack uh, at this moment in world history as we leave the industrial society move on to the post-industrial society uh, it's not only your your uh, pleasure to think for yourself it's your duty you got to think for yourself in the information age Think for yourself, question authority. Now, if you don't know who Timothy O'Leary is, let me pull up some Wikipedia on him and uh, teach you a little something. Timothy Leary. Okay. Do do. Here we go. Timothy Francis Leary. Born October 22nd, 1920, died May 31st, 1996, was an American psychologist and writer known for advocating the exploration of the therapeutic potential of psychedelic drugs under controlled conditions. As a clinical psychologist at Harvard University, Leary conducted experiments under the Harvard Psilocybin Project in 1960-1962. LSD and psilocybin were still, well, were still legal in the United States at that time, um, resulting in the Concord Prison Experiment and the Marsh Chapel Experiment. Um, Fun fact, Ken Kesey, the guy who wrote um, Sometimes a Great Notion, and more popularly, he wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Ken Kesey, he was the one of the people who got together the um, the bus, the uh, the weird trip bus. If you ever see pictures from the 60s, there was like this this bus that was painted all sorts of crazy colors, and they were called like the uh, the Merry Band of Pranksters, what they called themselves. Uh, Ken Kesey, this writer, and his wife, who was a teacher and other like teacher friends, just their friends from the NorCal, Northern California area, they got together and formed, I, I believe, I'm not mixing this up, I believe they were the Merry Band of Pranksters, but they did. They got this bus together and they drove around. I might pull up some information about that. Well, Ken Kesey was a football player at Harvard, and he um, uh, participated in one of these experiments with uh, psilocybin. I think uh, he was, I think they were injecting just like straight psilocybin into their subjects to see what happened. And Ken Kesey had a profound awakening and... Um, became who who he, who he became to be. Uh, anyway, let's see. 
going back to Timothy O'Leary, however, the scientific legitimacy and ethics of his research were questioned by other, other Harvard faculty because he took psychedelics together with research subjects and pressured students in his class to take psychedelics in the research study. Leary and his colleague Richard Alpert, who later became known as Ram Das, who I'm going to touch on here in a minute, um, were fired from Harvard University in May 1963. The National Illumination as to the effects of psychedelics did not occur until after the Harvard scandal. Leary believed that LSD showed potential for therapeutic use in psychiatry. He used LSD himself and developed a philosophy of mind expansion and professional truth or, or personal truth through LSD. After leaving Harvard, he continued to publicly promote the use of psychedelic drugs and became a well-known figure of the counterculture in the 1960s. He popularized the catchphrase that promoted his philosophy, such as, turn on, tune in, drop out. Uh, set and setting, and think for yourself, question authority. He also wrote and spoke frequently about transhumanist concepts involving space migration, intelligence increase, and life extension, which she put together as a, a fun little acronym, SMILE, with like a to the second power by the I. And he developed the, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, and this isn't mentioned here, but another person I'm going to talk about, developed the eight-circuit mode of consciousness in his book, Exopsychology, published 1977. He gave lectures, occasionally billing himself as a, quote, performing philosopher, end quote. During the 1960s and 70s, he was arrested often um, to see... Uh, he was arrested often enough to see inside of 36 prisons worldwide. President Richard Nixon, that piece of shit, once described Leary as, quote, the most dangerous man in America, end quote. Now, um, going back to Alpert, I always forget if it's, yeah, Richard Alpert, um, Later, he became Ram Dass, and he's really famous for this book called Be Here Now. And I actually have a copy of it here on my desk. So for those of, of you who are watching this, I'm going to grab it so you can see what the book looks like. It's pretty fucking trippy. Give me a second. Okay, so here's this book called Be Here Now. It's really trippy. The first time I saw this book was um, at my parents' house in Oklahoma. It was up on one of the bookcases, and uh, it was my mom's copy of this book, and she got this in the 70s. And this book is really trippy. I remember, I think I must have been in high school, maybe even junior high, I cracked open the book and just... I was blown away. There's just uh, some really, it's a really far out book. That's the only way I can describe it. Far out. Let me see what the publication date is here. Um, give me just a second. Yeah, Albert, he was a professor at Harvard and he was friends with Timothy Leary and they both got in trouble, but uh, they both also got really turned on. Not like sexually aroused, but like, you're awake for the first time. You're you're turned on. You're a full human for the first time in your life after um, experimenting with lots of psilocybin and LSD. Let's see here. Um, is there even a publication date on this thing? I think this came out. Uh, blah, blah. Where is it? All right. There's no like publication date on here, unfortunately. I don't think. No, but it starts off with um, Richard Alpert's just talking about 
kind of his life, um, especially his professional life leading up to the moment where he like ended up going to India. And then the bulk of the book is printed on this like brown paper. I'm guessing it's probably recyclable paper or recycled paper. And in it, there's just um, all sorts of like mandalas and other trippy things with little poems and messages written there to Maharaji for uh, to Maharaji of whose Ashribad blessing this is a manifestation and there's all sorts of really cool just like I said really far out stuff here the heart cave and it's got like the heart chakra Except ye be converted and become as little as children, ye shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you start again, become that trusting, open, surrendered being. The energy can't come in, that is, or the, uh, unless you start again, become that trusting, open, surrendered being. The energy can't come in, that is, the kingdom of heaven. The energy is the same thing. Cosmic consciousness. Consciousness equals energy, equals love, equals awareness, equals light, equals wisdom, equals beauty, equals truth, equals purity. It's all the same trip. It's all the same. Any trip you want to take leads to the same place. Purify enough. Become immerse, beauty, become it. The potter becomes his pot. Embrace the 10,000 beautiful visions. Become one with the universe. All the energy passes through you. You are all the energy. And all resides in your heart. If you can go within your spiritual heart, your hridayam, you will then know that you are he. And it is from this place in your heart cave where we are now, we watch the entire drama that is our lives. We watch the illusion with unbearable compassion. And so on and so forth. It just, it goes on. It's just like this big long poem with these uh, illustrations throughout it. And it's just giving this message about, uh, you know, stuff you kind of think of on a really good trip on a really kind of a profound trip that opens you up and turns you on for the first time now the the eight circuit model of consciousness um that uh, usually timothy leary is the one attributed to creating the eight circuit model uh, or, or mode, whichever, of consciousness. And that is basically just the eight components that are, you know, that make up your consciousness. This goes beyond uh, Freud's ego, superego, id kind of a thing. Um, it's, it sort of elaborates on that. And um, the guy who helped Timothy Leary uh, compose that eight circuit model was named Robert. Anton Wilson. Let me do a little um, Wikipedia on Robert Anton Wilson, and I've got a really notable book of his. Um, the thing that really helped create the Eight Circuit model or mode of of uh, consciousness is, you know, Robert Anton Wilson worked with Timothy Leary, but Robert Anton Wilson did like a lot of the really heavy lifting without much of the credit. In this this piece, you can find it for free online. This thing called the um, it's called Prometheus Rising, you know, like uh, the fire Prometheus, uh, Prometheus Rising. Check it out. It's really far out. Um, so I don't ramble on. I'm gonna consult Wikipedia here and try to find a better summary of these things. First, Robert Anton Wilson. Okay, let's see. Wikipedia. Robert Anton Wilson, born Robert Edford, or Robert Edward Wilson, 
born January 18th, 1932, died January 11th, 2007, was an American author, novelist, essayist, editor, playwright, poet, futurist, and self-described agnostic mystic. Recognized by Discordianism as an episcopos, pope, and saint, Wilson helped publicize the group through his writings and interviews. Wilson described his work as an, quote, attempt to break down conditioned associations to look at the world in a new way with many models recognized as models or maps and no one model elevated to the truth, end quote. His goal being, quote, to try to get people into a state of generalized agnosticism, not agnosticism about God alone, but agnosticism about everything, end quote. Wilson was a major figure in the counterculture, comparable to one of his co-authors, Timothy Leary, as well as Terence McKenna, and others. So yeah, this is um, Robert Anton Wilson. He There's a lot of stuff to cover here. I've been reading about this shit for years. Discordianism was mentioned in that article. So here's the wiki summary of Discordianism. Discordianism is a paradigm based upon the book Principia Discordia, written by Greg Hill with Carrie Wendell Thornley in 1963. The two working under the pseudonyms uh, Malaclips the Younger and Omar Khayyam Ravenhurst. Omar Khayyam is uh, Ravenhurst. I don't know what the Ravenhurst is, but the Omar Khayyam part is a nod to um, an ancient Persian poet. And he's famously wrote the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. R-U-B-I-Yat. I don't know. Just look it up. Omar Khayyam. Um, my parents got me the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam when I was in college. And it's just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful poetry. And it's a lot about just being. It's a lot of existential stuff um, dealt with in old, old Persia. So let's see here. Um, According to the self-proclaimed crackpot historian Adam Gorightly, Discordianism was founded as a parody religion. Many outside observers still regard Discordianism as a parody religion, although some of its adherents may utilize it as a legitimate religion or as a metaphor for a governing philosophy. The Principia Discordia, if read literally, encourages the worship, and and nothing in Discordianism is meant to be literal. It's all very tongue-in-cheek, and it's pointing at uh, everything that's taken so seriously, everything we take in our life so seriously. Um, It points a finger at it and says, this is absurd, everything is absurd, Um, nothing, like uh, anything is possible, you know, nothing is nothing is proven, anything is possible. There, There's some ancient fucking quote. I forget what it is. I'm rambling here. Uh, the Principia Discordia, if read literally, encourages the worship of the Greek goddess Eris, known in Latin as Discordia, the goddess of disorder, or archetypes and ideals associated with her. Depending on the version of Discordianism, Eris may be considered the goddess exclusively of disorder or the goddess of disorder and chaos. Both views are supported by the Principia Discordia. The Principia Discordia holds three principles, the aneuristic order, the aristic disorder, and the notion that both are mere illusions. Order and disorder are both mere illusions. Uh, Due to these principles, a Discordian believes there is no distinction between disorder and chaos, since the only difference between the two is that one refers to order. 
An argument presented by the text is that it is only by rejecting these principles that you can truly perceive reality as it is, chaos. It is difficult to estimate the number of Discordians because they are not required to hold Discordianism as their only belief system, and because, by nature of the system itself, there is an encouragement to form schisms and cabals. It's, it's all very funny, and uh, if you go online and try to find any tenets of Discordianism, there's no one that can agree, and everyone makes up their own shit because, well, everything is made up. Our religions, our economy, our stories that we tell ourselves, everything is made up. It's, everything is based off of arbitrary um, words that we assigned to things, arbitrary language that we use to, I guess, process things that we experience. And I've talked about this at least once before on this podcast. And this is kind of what Timothy Leary was talking about when he was talking about we are imprisoned by our language. Let's take a moment and look at language. Let's deconstruct language itself. Let's look at a computer. Okay, so you have a program. You want to make a program. You've got hardware that works on open and closed circuits. So electricity, energy can flow through those circuits. And um, so say an open circuit is zero and a closed circuit is one. And that is the basis of the binary mathematical language, the base computer language there is, open and closed, one and zero. Now, when you string together a bunch of ones and zeros, you create a bit of code, a line of code, say. And then, uh, then you just keep making more and more code using ones and zeros. So the ones and the zeros are a certain type of language used to create um, programs, used to create um, used to get your computer to do stuff and to display stuff on a monitor. And then it goes further. With those ones and zeros, with those bits of codes, we are able to produce a certain type of language. And there are many different types of languages that are used to run different types of programs on computers. And these different programs perform different functions or similar functions in different ways. Um, so when you have a language like C++, C++, HTML, CSS, you learn these things. If you look at a book and everything, it looks like a bunch of gibberish. It's just, uh, these different codes of different symbols. And these symbols are based off of ones and zeros based off the binary language. But, um, yeah, you, you string together ones and zeros to create a certain language using all these symbols, like just arranging brackets and numbers and certain words and like the tilde sign and the greater than, less than sign and stuff like that to create code. And that code will display something a certain way on your monitor and it will, have you know, make your computer perform certain types of functions. It's a language. And the way a, a, um, a program works is that it, it runs on language. And the way that computers are able to communicate between one another is that they speak a same language, you know? We all can log in on old school websites, which are all based on HTML. Um, which I learned a little bit of. I taught myself like, oh, for like maybe a month, a little bit of HTML when I was in high school. Um, well, say we've got this thing called the internet where all the computers that are hooked up to the internet can sort of go and look at these websites that are written with HTML. Your computer and my computer both run on programs that are built on ones and zeros and built on uh, another program that is able to read and understand the language that is HTML. And then it displays a certain website. It controls the size of the font. It controls images. It controls whether the images move if you get into like JavaScript. Now, um, so basically, 
a computer talks and thinks using language. That is very similar to what we humans do. We use language to understand things and to express things and to request perform certain functions. And we think with language. The language we use controls what we are able to perceive and what we are able, able to believe. Say, you know, maybe in English, we only have, uh, you know, different types of snow. We have slush, we have hard pack, we have fresh powder, um, we have slurry, we have flurry. We have these different types of snow. However, in the Inuit languages, the Eskimos, uh, although I think Eskimo is like a canceled word now, isn't it? But then Inuit, that's like any kind of uh, any kind of uh, Aboriginal tribe, isn't it? Or is it only the ones like in the Arctic? Well, anyway, the Inuits say their language has totally different words for snow because snow is so much more a part of their existence. It's a part of their survival. Um, it's a part of their lives. It's a part of their worlds more than it is, say, someone who lives in an equatorial jungle. Um or forest, they have different words. They use a different language. And in this language, they have different words to describe snow. And through that, they're able to kind of perceive more things. It's kind of like, um, you know, if you learn something new or you learn a new word and then suddenly you start seeing that word everywhere or you understand something new and you start noticing it everywhere, you know, like, uh, like say the word, the, the Dunning-Kruger Dunning effect, which is basically, it's kind of like um, what a lot of people have, and it's like a good example would be Donald Trump. Dunning-Kruger effect is where a person literally believes that they know more than they actually know. So this person is not an, an individual who is experiencing the Dunning-Kruger effect does not realize that they don't know as much as they think they do. So that's basically Dunning-Kruger. You think you know more than you actually do know. Um, so say you, you learn that word, the Dunning-Kruger effect, and then you start noticing it all over. Maybe you'll start noticing things that, uh, like, you know, I've got this friend, Sam. I'm making up a friend. I'm not talking about my actual friend, Sam. Sam, if you're watching or listening, hi, I'm not talking about you, bud. Um, but say that we have an imaginary friend, Sam, and Sam uh, suffers from the Dunning-Kruger effect. You knew there was something up with Sam. You're like, there's something, I, like, something a little annoying about Sam, but I don't really know how to describe it. It's kind of like he knows a little more. Oh, Oh, I just learned this new thing. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Snap. That's it. That's what Sam experiences, the Dunning-Kruger effect. So when you have a word or a string of words, uh, you're able to perceive certain things. You're more likely to see certain things and believe certain things. Say you're told Nina, who you're about to go on a blind date with, all you know is this person's name is Nina. And um, before you meet with Nina, a mutual friend meets up and says, hey, um, Nina's pregnant, FYI. And then you go to the date and you try not to bring it up, but then you bring it up and say, um, your friend Jackie said that you, Nina, are pregnant. How far along are you? And then Nina rolls her eyes and is like, Jackie's just jealous. I'm not really pregnant. And um, there you go. Your reality has been shaken because you went in thinking that um, Nina might be pregnant when in fact she really wasn't. Um, her friend Jackie was just being petty. So then again, that's another example of, say, language controlling your reality. Language controls the way you think. And uh, 
to become, you, you know, if you really want to see reality, you will want to become agnostic. Um, agnostic is basically you don't believe, but you also don't disbelieve. You are simply open to experiencing it straight and informing yourself, thinking for yourself, questioning the authority, questioning Jackie's authority. Is Jackie telling the truth? Is this Nina actually pregnant? I don't know. I'm not going to say she isn't, and I'm not going to say that she is. Uh, so you just withhold until you have a direct experience. And that's kind of the crux of the, the thing that Robert Anton Wilson wrote that I'm talking about, which is called Prometheus Rising. Um, and like I said, I, I really encourage you to go online and just get a free copy. It's all free. And I think it's like, okay, that it's free. I don't think you're pirating it. And read it. It's pretty pretty much a short read, but every chapter deals with um, another layer, and it gives you an experiment. That's the really fun thing about Prometheus Rising, is that it's composed of these experiments that you can do on your own. You're supposed to get a journal and write down your findings and approach these experiments with a scientific mind. And if you do these uh, experiments in earnest, if you really do them, you will come to find out that things you maybe took for granted or beliefs you took for granted aren't quite as definite as you might have thought. And a really fun one is the the quarter game or the quarter experiment where for like the next week or two weeks, walk around and see how many quarters you find on the ground. All of a sudden, you start looking for quarters. And um, you're going to do two, you're going to do this quarter experiment two times. So let's make it two weeks, one week for each time. If you find quarters on the ground, um, write down if you find a bunch of quarters, you're keeping a journal every day, write down why you happened to find quarters. And if you come to find more quarters than you did before performing this experiment, why are you all of a sudden finding new quarters? Is it that you were simply looking for quarters and finding them? Were they already there or were they placed there because you were looking for the quarters? So is it up to you? Is it the fact that you're simply looking for it, that you notice these things you would have otherwise not noticed? Or is it that a god or something or someone is placing them there because now you're consciously looking for quarters on the ground as you go about your life? And if you don't find quarters, why is that? It's what if you maybe used to find quarters on the ground, but once you start the experiment, you just can't find any quarters why is that? Is someone taking the quarters away? It's to get you to question your belief system, and it's to get to question um, how you think in general. And there's another exercise Robert Anton Wilson uh, promotes, and I don't remember if it was part of Prometheus Rising, but it's a really good one. Just sit down um, in silence, alone, sit down quietly, and just sit um, and you're not really going to meditate or anything, but set a timer for 60 minutes. So you're just going to sit alone, no TV, no radio, no podcast, no electronics on, unless you need a timer to time out the 60 minutes. Um, just sit there alone, still, and just sit. And that's it. You don't have to count breathing. You don't have to do any mantra. You just sit. But the thing is, there is one thing you have to do. You have to ask yourself, why am I sitting here? And that's it. And you keep asking that question. It's kind of like the Socratic method, which is basically asking why. That's the Socratic method is why. You sit there and ask, why am I sitting here? And you keep asking it and asking it and asking it for an hour um, or longer if you want. And then when your time is up, see where you came to. You know, 
I know Robert Anton Wilson has some funny thing where he he did that exercise and he ended up with coming to an answer, the final answer, why am I sitting here? Because Napoleon uh, invaded this one country one time. You know, just see wherever your brain goes, but keep asking, why am I sitting here for an hour? Um, now, the thing, Robert Anton Wilson, one of the things he's really famous for is this book, which I have right here. Again, audio listeners, you're missing out. Video listeners, you're in the goods here. It's this book or, or trilogy of books called the Illuminatus Trilogy, written by Robert Anton Wilson and Robert Shea. The first book is called The Eye in the Pyramid. The second is The Golden Apple. And the third is Leviathan, the Illuminatus Trilogy. It was a deadly mistake. Joseph Malik, editor of a radical magazine, had snooped into rumors about an ancient secret society that was still alive and kicking. Now his offices had been bombed. He's missing. And the case has landed in the lap of a tough, cynical, streetwise New York detective. Saul Goodman. And this is before Better Call Saul. Saul Goodman knows he has stumbled onto something big. But even he can't guess how far into the pinnacles of power this conspiracy of evil has penetrated. Filled with sex and violence, in and out of space and time, the three books of the Illuminatus trilogy are only partly works of imagination. They tackle all the cover-ups of our time, from who really shot the Kennedys to why there's a pyramid on the $1 bill, and suggest a mind-blowing truth. This book is a total trip, and it's a, it's a comedy. The book is a comedy, and it is meant as a satire because Robert Shea and Robert Anton Wilson were both editors of Playboy magazine and uh, in the 60s and in the early 70s. And they would get all these wackadoo letters from people uh, talking about conspiracy theories. And the, the two Roberts, they would just like get really high and just read these things and laugh about them. And they eventually started writing these books based off of these things. They wanted to pack every possible conspiracy into the book. And, you know, a lot of it goes up to the Illuminati. Um, yeah, I don't know how else to describe the book. I want to read a little bit of it, though. Let's see here. It was published first in 1975. The first trip, or Kether, from Dealey Plaza to Watergate. The purple sage opened his mouth and moved his tongue and so spake to them, and he said, the earth quakes and the heavens rattle. The beasts of nature flock together and the nations of men flock apart. Volcanoes usher up heat while elsewhere water becomes ice and melts. melts. And then on other days it just rains. Indeed do many things come to pass. That is from Lord Omar Khayyam Ravenhurst, KSC, the Book of Predications, the, from the Honest Book of Truth. It was the year when they finally amenitized the Eschaton. On April 1st, April Fool's Day, the world's great powers came closer to nuclear war than ever before, all because of an obscure island named Fernando Poo. By the time international affairs returned to their norm, Cold War, normal Cold War level, some wits were calling it the most tasteless April Fool's joke in history. I happen to know all the details about what happened, but I also have no idea how to recount them in a manner that will make sense to most readers. For instance, I am not even sure who I am, and my embarrassment on that matter makes me wonder if you will believe anything I reveal. Worse yet, I am at the moment very conscious 
I wait, wait. I am at the moment. Hold on. Worse yet, I am at the moment very conscious of a squirrel in Central Park just off 68th Street in New York City that is leaping from one tree to another. And I think that happens on the night of April 23rd. Or is it the morning of April 24? But fitting the squirrel together with Fernando Poo is, for the present, beyond my powers. I beg your tolerance. There is nothing I can do to make things any easier for any of us. And you will have to accept being addressed by a disembodied voice, just as I accept the compulsion to speak out, even though I am painfully aware that I am talking to an invisible, perhaps non-existent audience. Now, if that isn't the perfect feeling of a writer, then I don't know what is. Um, it just occurred to me that this one episode is not enough for me to talk about chaos magic, which is what I wanted to get into. So I'm going to call this part one, and I will do a part two if, if I don't happen to get a tattoo on my birthday. Um, I will do a part two on the next episode. If not, then uh, I will do the part two of chaos magic after the tattoo episode. So you have that to look forward to. Um, if you want to help donate to the show, help me keep it running, help me make this thing better and better every time, uh, please donate, show your thanks, you know, show your appreciation by donating via my Patreon at patreon.com slash that thing with James. You can donate as little as a dollar a month or you can donate more. Patreon.com slash that thing with James. Um, audio listeners, if you aren't subscribed to my channel, please subscribe or to my show, subscribe, rate and review it because uh, that helps me out. And for the YouTube viewers, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to my channel, like the videos you like write a comment, and for all of you, share the show with your friends. Uh, if you have a story or subject you would like me to cover on the show, if you have some advice you want for me to answer on the show, or if you just want to reach out and say hi to me, you can send me an email at thatthingwithjames at gmail.com. Um, or if you want, you could reach out to me through direct message on Instagram and Twitter. My handle is at James J. Asher. Uh-oh. Well, the camera just died. <laughs> so uh, this is the end of it, I guess. Thanks for watching. And uh, I love you all. Catch you next week. Bye.